Well, you know, if you have been a part of our time together in worship <clears throat> this year, you know that we have a theme at First Baptist Arlington that's been guiding us this entire year. And our theme for this year is, why does it matter? And I've enjoyed this conversation we've had together as we are just looking at various facets of that conversation, looking at different topics and asking the question, why do any of them matter? And so today we're going to bring this conversation to a conclusion as we've been looking at the supernatural, asking the question, why does the supernatural matter? And by the supernatural, what I really wanted us to focus on during the month of August is just the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in this world. So with that said, this morning, I want us to look at this encounter with Jesus that's recorded in John 20. And so if you have your copy of the New Testament, we're going to look at that in just a moment. But let me just remind us of where we are um, when we come to John 20. You know, we've been reading through the Gospel of John in our daily Bible readings. And so this coming week, this Monday through Friday, here's what I've assigned you to do. I want us to read John 16 through 21. John 16 is the continuation of this conversation Jesus is having with his disciples on Thursday evening prior to his crucifixion on Friday. And in John 16, we have these personal and powerful insights from Jesus about the continued role of the Holy Spirit and about what's about to happen just on the horizon in front of these disciples. Then John 17, you know, is this famous prayer of Jesus, where if we want to know what's on the mind of Jesus on this final night before he dies on the cross for our sin, well, you read John 17, because here's a very intimate prayer from Jesus. John 18 is the arrest of Jesus, the trial of Jesus. And uh, it is a gripping story. John 19 tells the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. You come to the end of John 19 and John ties up a couple of loose ends for us, if you will, because one of the questions that might be looming in people's minds who've read John's gospel is what happened to Nicodemus? He shows up on page three. We hadn't heard another word from him. But then he shows up again, John 20, he and Joseph of Arimathea, and, uh, or John 19 rather, and they will take the body of Jesus to provide a proper burial. Then you come to John 20, which we will read this week, and a portion of it is our text for this morning. John 20 is the story of the resurrection of Jesus and his appearances as the resurrected Christ. So here's what you have in John 20 by the time you get to our text. You've got the empty tomb. The women go to the tomb and the tomb's empty. Then you have the appearance of Jesus to Mary Magdalene. Remember that story? It's a fascinating story, isn't it? This, this appearance to Mary Magdalene. I, I would say this this morning. It's as an aside, but it's a very important aside. Oftentimes we don't necessarily read these texts slowly enough 
and thoughtfully enough to be paying attention. It's so easy. We know these stories so well. We can read them and kind of run roughshod over them. But let me just say as an aside, pay attention to the role of women in the story of Jesus. If you remember, the birth of Jesus is possible because of the cooperation of a faithful woman, Mary. And she's the one who receives this revelation from God that it's now time for the birth of the Messiah. As a matter of fact, it's not just time for the birth of the Messiah. You're going to have the Messiah. And so Mary, this young woman, takes this incredible step of faith and obeys. And consequently, you and I celebrate Christmas. And then Jesus shares an incredible amount of insight about himself with another woman. The woman at the well in Samaria. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 can you imagine putting two pages of the Bible together that would contrast more than John 3 and John 4? In John 3, Jesus meets with Nicodemus, the, the, one of these ruling elders in the life of Israel, someone with favored status, someone who always goes to the front of the line, has the best seats, gets the VIP passes to all the major golf tournaments and sporting events in the first century, and contrast that with a woman, not just a woman, a Samaritan woman, and Jesus tells her, I'm the Messiah. And what does she do? She tells her entire village and introduces them all to Jesus, and they embrace Jesus as the Savior of the world. And now we come to the most important story in the New Testament, and that is the resurrection of Christ. And to whom does Jesus entrust that story? A group of women. Mary Magdalene, of all people. Y'all do remember Mary Magdalene, right? Uh, let, let, let me just remind you who Mary Magdalene is. Luke 8. Luke says this in Luke 8. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Isn't that fascinating? The resurrection of Jesus is entrusted to a woman who has formerly been demon-possessed. Are, are y'all still with me? <clears throat> In the first century. It's so easy to just read past these things without making note of how intentional these gospel writers are to let you know this story, this message of Jesus is for everybody. And if you meet Jesus, he refuses to leave you where you are. And he will challenge you to become more than you could ever imagine. That's a whole other sermon, and I'm not going to preach it today. But I just want you to see the aside, okay? So, with all of that said, we got an empty tomb. We got Mary Magdalene running back to the disciples and saying, I've seen Jesus, and something else is about to happen. He's told me not to even 
get too close to him. I, he's not evidently going to be with us anymore. I mean, who knows what, what the testimony is, but the point is she has seen Jesus and she knows it, okay? So now we come to our text. So if you look at it with me, John 20, I'll invite you if you're able to stand, we'll honor the Lord Jesus here in the reading of the gospel as we typically do. John 20, verse 19. So it's still Sunday. It's still Easter, okay? On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Thank you. Maybe seated. <clears throat> well, this has obviously been a in this story, a monumental, eventful, traumatic week. <laughs> so like I said, you've got an empty tomb. Peter and John have seen it. You've got whatever's in front of them now. Now what? So let's start with a conversation. I'm going to offer you about six words today for you to think about this story as we bring the conversation about the supernatural to a conclusion, and you spend time this re week reading John's conclusion. Let's start with the word fear. The followers of Jesus had every reason to be sequestered and afraid. I, I'm not sure what you and I would have done after Jesus had been crucified. What do you think we would have done? There you are in Jerusalem at this high festival Passover, friends, relatives, Jews from all over the world are gathered in Jerusalem. And so Jesus has been crucified very publicly. I'm sure everyone in Jerusalem knew it. And now you've got an empty tomb. You've got Mary Magdalene. And by this time, presumably, you've had two disciples from Emmaus come back now and report. They've seen Jesus. Okay, but what? <laughs> so we got an empty tomb. A handful of people are telling us they've seen Jesus, but what? Now what? Well, they're afraid. <clears throat> I, I don't blame them, do you? Have you ever been afraid? <clears throat> you know, uh, the Chapman University, <clears throat> for the last nine years, a group of sociologists have been analyzing the fears of American adults. And they have cataloged 95 of them that American adults say they're just afraid of these things. And each year they publish the top 10 list. At the end of 2022, here's the top 10 list. Here's what American adults are most afraid of. Number one, 62% of Americans say they're most afraid of corrupt government officials. Interesting. Number two, people that I love becoming seriously ill. 60% of American adults say I'm, I'm just afraid of that. Number three, Russia using nuclear weapons. 
Number four, people that I love dying. Number five, the United States being involved in another world war, 56% of adults. Number six, pollution of drinking water. Number seven, not having enough money for the future. Number eight, an economic financial collapse. Number nine, pollution of oceans, rivers, and lakes. And number 10, biological warfare. Every one of those, over half of American adults are afraid of those things. In other words, fear is real. Y'all remember this year at children's camp how we, we kind of had fun with all these new words. Do y'all remember that? We looked at all these different words that the dictionaries now are, they're creating or acknowledging. Well, <clears throat> the Collins English Dictionary has just revealed the word of the year for 2022. You know what the word is? Permacrisis. Now, what do y'all think permacrisis means? Here's, here's what it says. Um, an extended period of instability and insecurity, especially one resulting from a series of catastrophic events. As the Collins Dictionary editors commented on it, they talked about how this word rings true because of the war in the Ukraine, climate change challenges, challenges, political instability, and the surge in inflation. This term embodies the dizzying sense of lurching from one unprecedented event to another, and people wonder what new harbors might be around the corner. Isn't that interesting? Perma crisis, fear, if you will. Well, these disciples were gripped with fear. And as I said, who could blame them? Let me offer you the second word this morning, fact. Jesus Christ is the resurrected Lord. <laughs> Isn't it interesting how John puts this in verse, look at verse 19. John says the disciples were together with the doors locked. How about that? You do that every night. <clears throat> In fact, you get up at night and check them, <clears throat> don't you, sometimes? You drive off from your house, and you think, did I close that garage door? Did you, did you see the garage door coming down? Let's just go back and make sure everything's okay. <clears throat> right? We got locks, security alarms, security companies, cameras. So let's don't judge these boys and girls for just locking. Did you lock the door? I don't know. Peter, go check the door, dude. <clears throat> Let's make sure. Well, fact. I love what John says. Look at, look at verse 19. Jesus just came and stood among them. Doesn't say open the door. He just came and stood among them. Don't you love that? <laughs> um, and then when he came, here's what he does. He says, peace. And then he says, it's me. You want to look? You see these holes probably just above his wrist. You see this, this hole in my side where they pierced me? I mean, these are visible wounds, and it's Jesus, all right. This is not, this is not a ghost. It's not apparition. I mean, this is Jesus. I love the fact that no one let him in. You know, there are some theologians who say the stone was rolled away at the tomb not to let Jesus out, but to let everybody else in. <clears throat> I'm not sure about that. But here's what I would tell you. Jesus is alive. 
fact. Um, and now, guess what? Everything has changed. Because of Easter Sunday, nothing can or will ever be the same. The Christ, the Lamb of God, the Good Shepherd, the door to the sheep gate, the bread of life, the, the water of life, the way, the truth, and the life, the light of the world, the true vine, the resurrection and the life. He is now the victorious, resurrected Lord, and that is a fact. And it has changed everything. Notice the very first message from the resurrected Lord. Peace. Peace. The peace of Jesus is deep and real. My goodness. If there's anything you and I could use a dose of today, it's peace. Notice what Jesus does twice in this text. Verse 19, Jesus says, peace be with you. Verse 21, peace be with you. Jesus told us earlier in this very book, John 14, verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, and I do not give as the world gives. In John 16, verse 33, you'll read this again this week, I've told you these things so that you, in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Obviously, he has just been resurrected from the dead. <laughs> he has overcome the world. And I want you to know that news is good today. The peace that Jesus brings you is not dependent upon all the circumstances around you. It is rooted in and related to your personal relationship with him as the resurrected Lord. And he can give you peace in the midst of any storm you and I will ever face. You can trust him. I don't understand it. I just know that he has conquered sin and evil and death and he now extends his peace to his followers. But I want you to notice the peace he extends is from a nail-scarred hand. It's not, it's not flippant peace. It's, just, it's not shallow, circumstantial peace where everything is okay. <laughs> That's not what this is. This is something else. This is something deep and meaningful that we all long for. I, uh, I came across this, this article a while back. It was, it was published in 2022, written by Eleanor Margolis. Here's the title of her article. It's published in iNews. She says, the title is, I'm agnostic, but news about the Ukraine war is so scary right now that I've considered becoming a nun. That's the title. Let, let, let me read you what she says. She says, there's nothing comforting about being agnostic. She says, it was in February while Russian tanks rolled into the Ukraine that I started to wonder if it was time to find God. Definite God, that is. Not the half-hearted agnostic one built on a Jenga tower of uncertainty. The addition of a heightened nuclear threat from Putin made me desperate for a vengeful Old Testament God, someone to smite the warmongers and oligarchs and the evil ones who know not what they do so that nothing is left of civilization but the cockroaches. She says, the last time I felt so envious of religious people was when my mom was dying of cancer. Certainly an afterlife Certainty, rather, about an afterlife sure would have come in handy then. And prayer might have created the illusion 
that I had some power over the situation. Instead, I was treated to the spiritual equivalent of the shrug emoji. I became a devout follower of one true religion of the 21st century, uncertainty. And those of us without traditional religion are left to make our peace with uncertainty. My stars. Pray, praise God. I am not trapped by uncertainty, but I'm here to testify because of the resurrected Lord, I can have the peace of Christ. We need it. And Jesus declares it to be true on the very first day of his resurrection. Next word, mission. The followers of Jesus have been sent as an extension of his mission into the world. Notice what Jesus says in verse 21. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. The Father sent him, and now Jesus, who was sent into this world on God's redemptive mission, he says, I'm sending you. So there it is, y'all, his mission. And his mission is for me and you, us. We've received it. We don't have to manufacture a mission. We don't have to create a purpose for ourselves. Jesus commissions us. We have been sent. So if you wonder, once you become a follower of Jesus, is there anything that you're supposed to accomplish on planet Earth in his name? And the answer is yes. You have been sent on his redemptive mission. Now, First Baptist Church of Arlington, we are a sending church. What does that mean when we say that? What that means is, is that years ago we decided step out on faith and start personally sending missionaries, cross-cultural workers to live in places across the world to take the message of the gospel to unreached peoples primarily. And we've been doing that now for a number of years. But I want you to know that to be a sending church, it doesn't just mean that. It does mean that. To be a sending church means we are all sent, all of us. And so you and I are living in a day where the people of God have to be sent to the people of this world. Luke shared a moment ago a word about these table groups. Well, here's what's happened. Our, our staff, we have organized what we're now calling our engagement team. We have a young families team. We have a median families team. Uh, we have a worship team. We have several teams. We now have an engagement team. Kurt Grice leads that team. Luke, obviously, is a primary member of that team. He helps oversee engagement. Uh, Katie Hodges represents me on that team. And Ashley is on that team as well. So you've got this group of folks who are analyzing how we can engage this world with the gospel. We now are reading a book together. It's this book right here. It's called The Great Dechurching. And uh, this book is written by Jim Davis and Michael Graham. Jim's a pastor in Orlando. And basically, this book is the result of an analysis of some startling data. As best we can tell, over the last 25 years, about 40 million American adults have stopped going to church. 40 million. 
And that's actually a conservative estimate. This is the first analysis of who they are and why they left. It is a very insightful um, study. There, this book also has some how-to information, some encouragement about what to do about it. But more than anything else, it offers us a true deep analysis of what's happening with the de-churching of America. Somewhat startling. And so we have decided as we're, this book is just adding to our work. Our work had already begun. But the point is, we believe that we as individual believers in Arlington must be sent to our community to share the gospel. And so we're developing strategies. You heard one today. These table groups. These table groups are not to take the place of Sunday school. Sunday school is our bread and butter here. Y'all know that. This is, this is a missional adventure. This is not another Bible study. This is missional activity, purposeful. It's going to have training, gatherings here on our campus. We're going to have people who open up their homes and people who help lead these missional groups. Because here's what we've learned about many people who've left the church and many people who've never been to church. You know, one of their deepest needs and one of the things that the data proves they want, they want to belong to something. And guess how they learn how to belong? They get invited. And guess where they're more likely to show up if they've been invited? To a home, not necessarily a church building. That's what the research tells us. So we're going to try it. Now, we're still, we're still going to invite people to the church building. <laughs> of course we are. In fact, we have completely renovated this campus. And the good news is, as we've done that, we've developed a strategy for using these facilities. You know what we call it? Amenities. Because we look at the amenities that are now offered here on this campus, but we want to see them as ministries. So things like the Family Life Center, which we're now calling Family Life experience. Is that right, Tara? Tara's sitting right here. She leads that. Flex. Um, we want to utilize the Family Life Center for this community as a ministry, as an outreach tool. Our cafe is being used already as an outreach tool. It's helping orphans in West Africa, but it's also ministering to lost people in this community who are finding their way here now and engaging in spiritual conversations with us who are strategically located there. Imagine that. And then these table groups. We want, to, we want to invite people to something, to belong to something. On September the 9th, we're going to have a day of discovering First Baptist Arlington. We're going to invite the community to come and see this campus, come and see what's here. We're issuing personal invitations to community leaders, business owners all around us to help them to see what actually happens on this campus and what could happen that might benefit them. Our ministerial staff have committed themselves to having one, at least one spiritual conversation every week, and we report that in accountable relationships. What if you joined them? What if every one of us had at least one spiritual conversation a week? I wonder how many spiritual conversations we could all have together before Christmas. Planting seeds. You know, I used to pastor two country churches. One of them was in Jimtown, Oklahoma. The other was in Mertens, Texas. And Y'all know I am anything but a country boy. I don't know anything about country life, okay? And that was very evident during those years I pastored there. But you know what I did know, but I learned from them? Seed is no good in the barn. 
If you got good seed and you put it in good soil, guess what happens? It grows. That's what happens. Well, the gospel's good seed, but as long as it's in the barn, it has no effect. And so you and I have got to sow the seed, and we're going to talk more about that, about engagement. Next word, presence. The Holy Spirit has been given to the followers of Jesus. <laughs> That's what I mean by empowered and sent. That's the title of this sermon. You see, the task of fulfilling our role in the great redemptive plan of God is too much for us. It's too big. It's overwhelming. We can't do it on our own. The good news is we don't have to do it on our own. Here in this upper room, Jesus breathes on these disciples. Don't you love that? I mean, the, Bible, the book of Genesis, I mean, the book of John opens with a shout out to the book of Genesis in the beginning. And then you come all the way to the end of John's gospel and we got another shout out to the book of Genesis. Jesus breathes and his breath is creative and powerful. And here's what he says. Now receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus is now with his people. This is the initial stage of the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not yet full. We still got Pentecost to come. That, that throws some people off when they read John's gospel. They say, wait a minute. You can't be breathing the Holy Spirit on people. We don't have Pentecost yet. Jesus can do whatever he wants to do. Y'all know that, right? <laughs> I'm gonna let him do whatever he wants to do. And he decides to go ahead and impart at some level the gift of the Holy Spirit to these people. But it's not complete yet. How do I know that? Well, the reason I know that is they can't even convince Thomas Jesus has been, Thomas, one of the disciples that Jesus has been raised from the dead much less the whole world. So this obviously is just an initial stage. It's like uh, Dean Hull, uh, used to be Dean at, at Southern Seminary. He says, you have the gentle breath in John, you have the rush of a mighty wind in Acts. But the point is the church has now been empowered by the Holy Spirit with gifts and we're guided by the Holy Spirit. So you and I have a task, but we're not engaged in this task on our own, praise God. But then finally, look at this last word, power. Power. The church embodies and expresses the eternally consequential message of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 23. This one right here will throw you just a little bit. Here's what Jesus says to his followers. If you forgive sins, they'll be forgiven. If you don't, they won't. Wow. So is that how you view the church? Some people read that and and they turn it into an incredible theology that has nothing really to do with what I think Jesus was saying. It's not about that kind of authority. It's not about ecclesial, ecclesiastic authority. Here's what Jesus is saying. What did Jesus do on this earth? He proclaimed the good news, and with the good news came repentance and salvation and hope. He now is saying, I'm going to leave you, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you my spirit, and you're going to go and do the very same thing. So the church has been empowered by God to proclaim this eternally consequential message of Jesus. So we're proclaiming the gospel. What's happening is people are repenting. Their sins are being forgiven. Those who don't repent live in their sin. That's what Jesus is saying. This doesn't mean you as an individual can walk around Arlington and go, hey, how are you doing? Your sins are forgiven today. Oh, yours aren't. No, I'm sorry. Yours are. You're, no, that's not what this is. This is about the message to the church, that the church with a capital C. We've been given something that's eternal, and sometimes we don't think about it, but we have. We've been, getting some, we've been given something that has eternal consequences in people's lives. There's nothing else like the church on planet Earth, and we are the ones who now embody this message. So we're going to shift gears for the fall. 
Starting next Sunday, I'm going to begin a new series entitled The Church. Why does it matter? And we're going to engage in a nine-week conversation about the church. Now, our staff has helped me put this together. So, Kurt Grice has written a core theological document that represents the core beliefs. And uh, it's, a, it's a statement about multiple aspects of our beliefs. It's in this document, Glorifying God by Following the Jesus Way. But the Bible study teachers, the Sunday school teachers, they've been given another set of materials. And that's this document I hold in my hand, Nine Foundational Truths. Our staff members have put these together. So beginning next Sunday, we're going to ask all of our Bible studies to come together and teach through these nine foundational truths. And on Sunday morning, I'm going to be preaching the messages that have to do with the role of the church and why does the church matter. So all together, the church, we're going to be studying the same curriculum. We're going to be gathered around the idea of this question about the church. What does the church believe? What's the core theology of our church? We're also going to have conversations on Sunday mornings about this church. Do you all know what this church does? Do you know what it means to be a part of this church. So we're going to be asking the question, why does the church matter? But we're also going to be asking the question, why does this church matter? And so for the next nine weeks, we're going to explore that conversation. And I'm looking forward to doing it with you. Now, this morning, as we conclude, here's what I want to ask you. You, most of you in this room, have met the resurrected Lord. Maybe not physically like these folks did. But it's just as real. You have met him spiritually. And he has forgiven you. He's cleansed you. He's given you his peace. And you've been empowered. And you've been sent. Where have you been sent? Into your world. Next Sunday morning, we're going to study what the core mission of our church is. And that is becoming fruitful believers, influencing our world for Christ. That's our mission. To be fruitful believers means to be enriched. To influence our world for Christ means to be engaged. So let me ask you this. How is God leading you? How is God using you? Where have you been sent? Let me make it even a little more blunt. How will God use you this week? And where will he send you this week? I hope you're paying attention. Let's pray together. <clears throat> well, Father, we, we're grateful for this gospel, this commission, the empowering work of your spirit, and that we have been sent. And so, Lord, I pray that we will see your hand at work in our lives this very week. And we will recognize that we've been empowered and sent by you to our world. And we trust that we will see you use us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.